renovations. I think they're going to be over with today, if not tomorrow. So I can finally pick up the rest of my projects. That's good. Are you going to be uh, joining us for a little while today? or? Yeah, I've got a... So I've got a meeting with our treasurer around 5, 5.30. Um, but I think I should be able to stay for most of the session, if not all of it. Good, good, good. It's uh, It may be a light one. So far, no one's joined since the announcement, which is fine. Uh, so we may do a shorter one. Uh, mostly what this is is because uh, uh, I know you didn't get to join last week. Uh, or were you here last week? No, you weren't. Um, we finished 3-7, as you probably assumed we might, uh, but I think, but we ended very close to the time, so it's just like, cool, let's go back and actually talk through what is actually in 3-7, uh, talk about the sister, talk about the mother, talk about incest and how these things shift and what they change, how they change over time. Um, and that's kind of the, like, bring your questions, let's talk through it. Yeah, I really like the idea for a review session, especially because this is where you get so, I mean, the, their phrasing, it's almost like a typical to losing water, right? Yep, this is yep, where you yep. get the, We're not starting um, yet. We're not starting yet. We'll kick off in a moment. Uh, I'm going to give a few more because then you're, you're start, about to say something, I think, quite profound. And I know where you're going. So I will let you I will hold, I'll force you to stop because uh, we need to save something if there's only two of us talking. <laughs> Uh, two seconds, I need to close my window. Is this where I segue into bad Star Wars jokes? Uh, I took my headphones off and didn't hear that. Would say again, Jack? <laughs> this is this where I segue into bad Star Wars jokes. Oh, dude, I, I will ban you so fucking hard. All right. That's how I've been doing, man. How have you been? Good. Been uh been working a ton, uh trying to get this new project off the ground. Uh, I've been doing a lot more reading lately, which is good. A lot more note taking. Uh, diving into a handful of new texts, uh, which has been nice. Uh, specifically the Werner Stegmeier stuff that Triad brought in. I've been going really deep into orientation philosophy, which is uh, interesting, to say the least. I'm a kind of a fan, so it'll be, it'll be fascinating to see what happens with that. So, yeah, otherwise, uh, uh, it looks like it may be a small group. So hopefully Remka and McSwagger Pants uh, have at least the ability to ask a, a slight question. Dear God, I hope. <laughs> this is going to be a tight. This could be the shortest discussion we've had on 3.7 um which is fine um usually people start showing up after a little bit so uh i'll do a, how about this jack uh, a little bit of a format and then uh, we'll go as long as you're capable and then if no one else has shown up we'll check out uh, i'll do my intro and then we'll do sort of an overview of 3.7 talk through what we do if remka or mcswagger pants have things or random person on youtube or whatever uh, they ask, we answer, and then we end when we end. Um, does that sound good to you, Jack? Sounds like a plan, my friend. 
All right, then I'll kick us off as I always do by saying hello and welcome to the Deleuze and Guattari Quarantine Collective's ongoing reading of Anti-Oedipus entering uh, what is our, our 500th year or what seems like it because this fucking uh, pandemic's never going to goddamn end. Um, uh, on this lovely Tuesday morning, uh, we're going to be diving through and doing a bit more of a, a refresh uh, and a review of our last three weeks, which has been covering uh, 3.7 of Anti-Oedipus, the barbarian or imperial representation, the shift from the primitive socius forward, and then uh, a lot of the things that happen inside of the uh, barbarian or imperial socius uh, and how the despot sort of functions, how anti-production functions, how uh, repression functions under this new regime. So uh, as we kind of do that. If there are any questions that pop up, don't hesitate to type them up in chat. If uh, you have uh, a mic, feel free to ask, um, and we'll kind of get through that. Uh, I, I had a handful of notes I know I wanted to get through and sort of have a, a conversation around, but the sort of big thing underlying a lot of 3.7, and it's one of the reasons that it's, we'll say, uh, it, it makes 3.7 difficult is the lens of Oedipus itself is, is bleed through everything. And uh, there's a lot of different ways to interpret that. Um, and I know this last time around, we talked through a number of different, uh, different ways people have had that conversation, ways people have discussed it, what, what they've thought. For me, uh, for me, the way I look at it is that they're using Oedipus as a uh, as a lens to sort of critique social production and how it's operated over time to utilize Oedipus and the way that it works as a representation to sort of dive back in, really talk through how desiring production manufacturers desire, how production works overall. And as we move forward to talk about the different pieces that are in place, the movement from chapter three early on as they discuss Oedipus greatly to 3.7, is a move through the underlying nature of uh, the primitive, underlying nature of how social production works from the filiative or family lines to the alliances, which is uh, the, the people I have agreements with sort of laterally, uh, the vertical versus the horizontal, and my place on that as a, as a subject, as a political subject. The move into 3.7 makes a big shift in this where a lot of the stuff that they've talked about terminology wise from the affiliative to the uh to the alliant to anti-production to production itself to desire to all of it uh suddenly takes on new forms and i know it, this shift can be difficult it's one of the reasons 3.7 took us so long i think we had five recordings last time we only did three this time so good for us maybe getting a little bit better or at least uh maybe getting worse depending on how you look at it um but I kind of wanted to give that sort of upfront uh, sort of dig at it uh, to begin because Anti-Oedipus is itself a very difficult text and we're now in what I believe are the real key segments when it comes to critiquing how repression works in our society, which we'll be moving into as we move into the capitalist mode of production. But this, this shift from primitive to despotic is incredibly important to understand all the details. So if anyone has questions, don't hesitate to bring them out. Um, it's a, it's, this is where it matters. Uh, Jack, I know you had some other thing to say. Uh, yeah, I would tack on to that. Um, 
so sometimes you don't have to start with questions, right? Sometimes it's just passages that interest you. And there may be questions that arise. There may be just things that interest you that spur conversation. So if there's just passages you find really intriguing, um, you know, we can start there too. It doesn't always have to be uh, bewilderment. <laughs> I could argue that it does have to be bewilderment, at least as far as a lot of this section is concerned. But hey, uh, maybe not. Who knows? Um, so we'll start with, um, does anyone have any questions that they thought about the last couple of weeks, things that have come up that they want us to sort of dive into first? I'm also very happy to just sort of go into the nature of despotic social production, how it works and the shift over time, which I think is a nice, you know, soft landing into this. But if you have a question, now would be the time, please. I'll leave it uh, open for a moment. It's not a problem. I'm happy to have a uh, awkward silence. I should have music in the background so people know that my mic's not broken. Like hold music, um, but for questions. Um, you should learn theory. how to play the mouth harp. Yeah. All right, Rimka kicks off. Uh, what is despotic? All right, this is this is the nice soft landing. So we'll just go into it. So uh, the way Deleuze and Guattari view history, uh, there's is sort of a universal history, not one of uh, sort of uh, things inevitably leading into one another or there being this nice clean line through time, but instead that things over time, like desiring machines and production itself, uh, have fits and starts and breaks and pieces here, lay here until they're found here and are picked up later. And they view this sort of universalized history uh, going back. Uh, they start us with the primitive. The primitive socius, uh, as uh, we discussed, and it's worth going slightly into, is a power structure that is very much up against directly with your desiring machines. So you have on the one side, for example, uh, you'll have, um, um, on the one side, you'll have um, your alliances, uh, which are the people you've decided to agree to make a tribe with. So uh, they're not directly your family, but they're people in your immediate area that you work with and you deal with on, a, on an imminent sort of constant basis. Uh, opposite that, uh, you have your familial line, your fili your filiations. Uh, this is not just mother, father, but this is the people who kind of you're born into. Uh, let's say you don't have a choice. <laughs> like it's 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 another imminent thing, different direction. So let's think of these two sort of axes as placing you somewhere on them. You are related to all these people in some way. Uh, how desire is manufactured and controlled there is again right up against desire. These things don't have a secondary later. There's no meta story here. There is no secondary setup. It's very much just, we need food as a people. You are the hunter, you're gonna go get it. Uh, then in this way, a hunter, for example, would never eat their own kill. They would bring it back because their desires are directly in line with those that they're right next to. Their, their desiring productions are up against it. How this is managed, is through an insanely complex and very powerful network of debt relations. Uh, it is not an exchangist sy uh, system, but instead very much based on debt. And that debt is carved out very early, literally on people's bodies quite often, to have you 
uh, owe society this or owe the group that or or become a man in this way. If you look at uh, you know initiation ceremonies as people come of age, men and women in a lot of Aboriginal and Indigenous peoples, they literally scarify or they mark or they tattoo or they do some kind of pain ritual. Uh, and Deleuze and Guattari go deeply into how all of this functions. But uh, that is my way of saying that I know my duties as I move forward. Now, all of this uh, has a secondary side to it, which is uh, we don't really at this point have written language. Instead, we have graphisms, we have cave drawings, and we have spoken words, uh, sounds and things that mean things, and pictures that sort of mean things, but no written words, no letter alphabet, anything of that sort. As such, the words that I'm saying or how I communicate or the pictures that I draw are, again, like my desire, almost imminent to the real, the thing that they're representing. This setup means that when I draw a graphism, for example, um, there is kind of no secondary meaning to it. It's meaning that thing, and it's more intuitive and directly connected to all of that. That's the very short version of kind of the, what is the primitive? Uh, the shift forward is at some point, uh, a despot comes along. And the despot is uh, some dude, uh, can be some woman, generally some dude in our own history, uh, who takes the place of that group. Uh, whereas before your debts were to the people around you, to your affiliative and alliant groups, now your debts are to this now conqueror, uh, the barbaric or the, um, um, I'm sorry, um, the barbaric or the imperial representation is the terminology they use. And we need to think of it in those two lines. It's one is like a Genghis Khan type character or the imperial, which is uh, the Roman type character where uh, they're a god, effectively a godhead of sorts that all debts are now accounted for. They are the father of all or mother of all. Uh, and for the filiative, they're also uh, the one we do all of our work for in the alliant. Everything, all lines sort of trace back. And because of that, all debts go back to the despot uh, in the way that you might say that a king uh, rules over all the land, owns all the land. It's the king's deer. It's the king's land. It's the king's corn. This is the terminology used quite often in sort of medieval Europe, not far off in uh, Chinese history. There's some, there's some commonalities here in terms of uh, having sort of that godhead figure that everything is ultimately done, done for. This despot, because they control multiple tribes, uh, they are that sort of now disconnected second layer. Before, if the group needed a chair, we made a chair. If we needed meat, someone went and hunted. This is kind of how it's set up. But the despot, because all of these groups now owe him a debt, he now has to organize all of them in his own way. And his own way tends to be towards some grand idea. The example they use, uh, and I'm going to try to use less orientalist examples, um, in Egypt, uh, they've decided that they want to build a pyramid or in, uh, they want to build Hadrian's Wall through Europe. Uh, that's not a thing that a village does. No one, no single village of like 50 people builds a, a huge monument. It's the collected works of dozens or hundreds of groups of people. How do you organize them? Well, you tell them, I need you to do this thing. And so they do the thing. Uh, they make the marble. They transport it. They put it in place. They carve it. They feed people, they grow the corn to provide. Whatever it is, the groups are now given edicts on what their production should make based on the 
the desires of the despot because the despot overall is overseeing all of these things. Uh, his ruling becomes the word of God. And this is done in a couple different ways. The first uh, that they talk about, and it's one of the more important, is uh, the specific case of imperial or despotic representation. Representation shifts from the uh, uh, long ago, long ago, the primitive time, from being just graphism on the one side, which is just pictures of things, uh, you know, cave drawings, um, or being spoken word, and suddenly the two get married. Uh, they talk at length about this, this imperial inscription. And now voice is no longer independent from graphism, and graphism is no longer independent from voice. Suddenly they cross over, and this inscription system forces one to become a signifier of the other. Uh, the example they give is um, someone who doesn't know the local language. They see a symbol. What is that? And someone goes, oh, that? That's uh, water. Well, now that person knows that symbol as water rather than just water. So now you have that one step removed. There's a, there's a meta layer there. That meta layer means that there's a secondary voice in all of this. And they, uh, there is a disconnected voice. And this is generally that of the despot. Uh, this is that of the Godhead, the, the representative to whom all debt is set. So when an edict comes by or a priest comes in and says things or whatever it may be, everything that's written comes from the despot. Just as everything is owed to, everything also comes from. And this sort of quasi-cause nature of the despot rearranges production across all of social production to be done for his good but there's no secondary nature to things. It's all basically the most brutal form of power structure that there is. Um, and the despot sort of takes care of and controls that. That is my long-winded, very long-winded explanation. Is that anyone disagree? Please jump in or add to it. That's my take on it. Was it too much, Rimka? So, um, how does the Oedipus uh, complex uh, relate to that? So they, so for them, they're they're utilizing Oedipus as a as a method of critique. Uh, they go back through and they say, uh, you know, if we assume Oedipus is determinate of the human condition, uh, uh, we should be able to go back and prove that. And they actually find really good reason to believe it's not in the primitive. There is no such thing as moms or sisters because families weren't organized like that. So incest as a thing, as, as the Oedipus process works, doesn't really work in the primitive. It doesn't work kind of at all until we introduce those elements. But at some element, sometime they do with the despotic uh, as things sort of shift because the despotic ultimately is both your familial line, uh, your, your filiation and your alliant line. There's kind of this incredible thing that happens as the despot goes off and marries someone. He's going to marry essentially the universal sister, no matter who it is, because again, the despot is alliant. It's a brothers or cousins or whatever. The despot represents that. And so now suddenly we're playing in a very different place where the despot essentially is going to marry my sister and then fuck my mom <laughs> and his own mom. Um, because this representation, because again, by separating the, uh, the voice 
the phonemes from the graphemes. The primitive didn't really have representation as we do. But now, because everything that's written comes from and is reliant upon the written word and the signifiers, now we suddenly have the essence of what is a mother or what is a sister. It's not literally my mom that I'm going to want to fuck. All the, we're not there yet. Uh, we aren't at the point where we actually have Oedipus yet, but the pieces are starting to show up. And with the despot, the first piece is this idea that the despot can fuck this weird royal sister version for all of us. Uh, and at the same time, uh, then also, you know, fuck his own mom because the the queen is the queen mother. Like this, these are words that people use, and they don't come out of nowhere. The mother, the queen is the queen mother, uh, and the king, the queen father. But it's also his own mom, and representation starts getting fucked up. This is kind of their point: is that we suddenly start having this disconnection between what things are in a material sense and what things are in a representative sense. And they're using Oedipus as a lens to start showing how this operates. That's probably my, my best example uh, or way to describe it. I'm happy to go super deep into that, but it's a confusing one for sure. I think part of the challenge is with Oedipus, and this is what I was saying earlier, bro. it's kind of this classic losing lottery uh, on one hand this, but on the other hand that, right? Because you got these these two um, these two hands you got to focus on, I guess. And I think what's kind of tough with Oedipus is that on the one hand we don't have Oedipus like we're used to today. Uh, the Socius is capital. But on the other hand, we do have Oedipus doing things, right? In the primitive, it's the I have to pull my notes there, but I think it's represented whereas in the barbarian socius it's going to move I, um, and I actually do uh, different things right but at the same time like you were saying in the primitive socius the incest that's possible is different from the incest possible in other socii right you can commit incest in a completely different way because affiliations and alliances allow for the brother the uncle um the uncle's sister the uh what will become appellations in the in, um not the imperative the imperial in the imperial uh, socius uh and therefore will uh, work differently right incest will start to actually oddly enough it'll it'll start to condense you'll have less incestuous options available uh interestingly enough so you'll see that all this is um changing so that Oedipus and incest themselves are actually not only shifting roles and taking on different degrees of importance, but also um, evolving in that process, which makes it tough uh, to go back to the original point because Oedipus then will, will change altogether, right? So it's constantly doing different things. And on the one hand, it's caught up in a process of production in relation to the paralogisms and rep and representation uh, all of uh, repression. But then on the other hand, right, because that's where you get the socii in that, you still got to deal with the unconscious in its production through the syllogisms. So it's <laughs> a lot of moving parts. 
Yeah, and it's the 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 paralogisms I think a huge part of this because the shift again in how representation functions and with inscription is is a big cause of a lot of this including the debt that is now visited solely upon the despot. So we have we have this despot who is now owed everything by his people. Uh everything that is happening is owed to him. He's in control. He's set up. It's all for him. As such, he is everyone's blank. Uh, mother, father, uh, even son. Uh, princes, uh, go watch what happened with the royal family when new children are born. All of England regards them as a child of the family. Like it's, it's this very strange thing that happens because of the general caste system that sort of exists and comes with the world of the despot. And this, this caste distinction where he is everything or owed everything or part of everything changes the setup from in savagery where uh, this this world of incest, which can happen, uh, obviously incest can happen, but it was more of like an after image uh, that could happen at some point that shifts now because we have a little a body, a full body of the the despot who's able to actually act on such a thing. Uh, and is also the only one able to. I'm not able to as a, a mere a mere mortal, a, a, just just a dude, a subject of all of this. And so as such, the shift goes from being just a displaced represented of desire, which is the paralogism as it functions in the primitive, but a shift to becoming the repressing representation of desire itself. And this distinction in the shift uh, in its early 201 that they... Uh, talk through this. Uh, in the imperial formation, incest has ceased being the displaced representative desire to becoming the repressing representation itself. The way the despot has of committing incest and of making it possible in no way involves removing the apparatus of social and psychic repression. On the contrary, the despot's intervention forms part of the apparatus, a new economy in the repressive, repressing apparatus. This this setup as it sort of shifts is one of the big things that ultimately is going to enable a new type of Oedipus and the Oedipus complex we know today within capital, but this shift is a significant one. It's still not, we're still not at full on Oedipus. Like we're still at a uh, sort of an awkward mutated junior version of Oedipus uh, at this point. Uh, you know, we had really, really junior version of it in Savage and during the despotic, we have a much more uh, simplistic view of it as well. Um, and Oedipus is not uh, Tarimka's question. Uh, is Oedipus then in itself a despot or a representation that is used? Uh, Oed Oedipus at, at this point, as far as we know, again, doesn't exist. It's more that by nature of being who he is or who they are the, as the despot, because all is owed to them, because all comes back to them, their acts of incest are not the taboo that we know, but instead that which is generated through how their power is sort of functioning and how debt is obligated to them. So again, we have to kind of break Oedipus apart. Oedipus isn't a thing we know now, but it's just a representation. And it's a lot of different machine parts that they've kind of talked through through the previous uh, three chapters, like most of this book, how Oedipus functions and how it works. And at this point, the big deal is for us to sort of pull back and go, here are these pieces. Here's how this is set up. What if we didn't have the whole thing? What if it was just these pieces that slowly start falling into place, but they need these other pieces that that haven't quite been invented yet? Uh, under uh, Savage, 
they needed, for example, inscription to be done a certain way, and they needed debt to be all within a single person in order to have incest become a thing that we can actually point at. Uh, we can't in the savage times because the ideals of a of a mother or a sister or the representation of such a things doesn't really exist. But under this, the despot, these things start to form, as does this power structure of this caste system of he who is blessed or he who is not. This starts to shift things around a little bit. Did that help or did that confuse? Well, I'll read a little bit more from uh, uh, Holland's take on it. Uh, Royal incest is still not yet the incest of every man's psychoanalytic Oedipus complex, though we are a step closer. For this form of incest exercises its mode of repression not by universally forbidding it, by making, but by making it licit for the despot alone within a system of rigid caste distinctions. The position of the despot, then, is in a literal sense an enviable one. He concentrates in his person the function of anti-productive expenditure for the entire empire and all of its people, and exercises the right of eminent domain over everything they produce and reproduce, as well as over the very life and death of the people themselves. Inasmuch, and absolutely everything is owed to the despot, and all organs, persons, and products belong to him as parts of his full body, his transcendent position is inherently paranoid. Uh, they quote from, uh, I believe it's actually the end of the chapter, uh, royal incest is inseparable from the intense multiplication of organs and their inscription on a new full body. The apparatus of social repression, psychic repression, i.e. the repressing representation, now finds itself defined in terms of a supreme danger that expresses the representative on which it bears, the danger that even a single organ might flow outside of the despotic body, that it might break away or escape. Uh, basically a gigantic trap for all desires inside of this representation. Um, and again, as Jack was saying, this goes back to the first paralogism, uh, the, the fifth paralogism, uh, that of representation, which is kind of a big one for these guys. Is that worth going over, Jack? Do you want to take a crack at going over it? I see you kind of did a little bit. Um, yeah, I, I can uh, give some words. So when we're talking about the socii and, uh, and the transition from the, the primitive to the despotic, and to kind of uh, keep in mind this question of them, I guess Remka's question in a nutshell is, what does Oedipus do for the despot, right? Um, how do they relate to each other? And so I guess I would say what keeps me kind of oriented is that when we're talking about the socii, right, we're talking about, I know we're talking about a lot of things, but we're talking about something in relation to the three syntheses that um, is critical to how they're going to play out, um, whether syllogistically or paralogistically. Uh, with the primitive, right, we're talking about affiliative and the alliant that uh, basically work in relation to the earth associus so as to uh, basically shift flows, right? So that flows can um, move one way, be blocked another way. This is that whole 
plus minus language. I think they work out from Leibniz and, um, oh, I can't think of his name, Levi Strauss, between the two of them in, in a previous section. And with that, right, they're working out how connections are formed through flows that are either blocked or channeled. So I guess the channel either way allowed to flow in a different way. How that will be playing out through inscriptions of affiliative, the former being uh, the alliant, right? How things connect and then how things are distributed, affiliation. Uh, and then that will lead into the third synthesis, which will give you your subjectivities, your consummation and consumption, right? Uh, so as we're looking into the despotic, we're seeing now how, and, and this is kind of how they open up 3.7 before they take a major uh, detour to explain what they mean by that. Because they, it, it's kind of weird how they go from like, this is how, this is incest and how affiliation alliance work, and then this entire thing about oppression representation, which kind of expands on the point, but it's almost like they start with the conclusion. Interestingly enough. Um, so that is to say that what's going to majorly change with the despotic starts to be constitutive of a despotic socius is that we've moved from the earth and its processes of coding to the despotic or the barbarian and these new processes of overcoding, right? Because they, with the earth, it's not like uh, there aren't codes, right? Uh, there actually are codes and that's part of what the socius does. In the, well, in it, it codes it codes exceptionally hard. It's one of the things just to make sure it's very clear. In the primitive, there is brutal repression. That it's not a state of freedom or something like some weird idealized version of like anarcho-commune happiness. Um, the everything is incredibly coded, and it's coded in such a way, as I said, it, they literally scarify or draw on bodies to sort of make sure you know what you are supposed to do and how, because your debts, uh, the debt system exchange is based on your literal moment and your existence inside of this much smaller network. But there isn't, there are no free flowing codes inside of a uh, primitive socius. Like it's very determinate. It's very determinate. Right. Because the decoded flows remain the nightmare of the, uh, of the socius. Correct. And that's important because the despotic will still be preventing that, right? Even though it's going to sort of work with the, uh, the earth's codes, even though that doesn't go away, um, neither too does the, uh, the basically the repression of those decoded flows, right? Those non-coded flows more so. Uh, and so with that, right, What's going to be constitutive for the despotic is no longer uh, simply a process of codification, but a process of over-codification, which they describe kind of like layerings, right? Uh, imbricating, I think, is another word they use. And so with that, we're starting to see no longer alliance and affiliation, but the new alliance or the new connectivity, right? The new um, techniques of the first synthesis and the extended filiation, no, the direct filiation, my mistake, the direct filiation, or now the direct second synthesis, right? And those are going to basically um, coordinate how subjectivity will be produced, right, which comes in the third synthesis. So in reference to what does Oedipus do for the despotic in that, and the fourth and fifth paralogisms, uh, what I posted is basically 
a short and skinny of uh, representation and repression. Um, so there's three components of representation and repression, right? The repressing representation or that which performs the repression. The repressed representative, that on which the repression actually comes to bear. And the displaced representative, which is um, what is projected upon with categories, rendered discernible, that is to say comes into visibility, right? Can be understood and provides the falsified apparent image. So that's what it was, kind of your third synthesis there. Although there's more going on, right? Uh, obviously a transcendent signifier comes into play there too. So during the savage or in the savage society, however you like, the repressing representation, um, we have incest as the retroactive effect or the effect of the performance of repression. So what that means is what performs the repression is incest. What keeps away non-coded flows is incest, which allows flows and everything to, to keep moving, right? That's, it, it allows codification to continue to promulgate, to evolve, um, not to be too Darwinian about it. The displaced representative, uh, yeah, the displaced representative desire is Oedipus. So that would mean that what gets projected upon with the categories, what comes into view as understandable in that, um, for the paralogisms more so, I think, and provides the falsified apparent image is Oedipus. So it doesn't have the, the same uh, oomph that it will in the, in the barbarian. And then finally, what is being repressed um, in this representation, right? What is coming, what is this bear upon as the germinal influx? which is basically that which is moving through the aligned affiliated, right? If we really want to simplify it, it's that which that coordination is um, uh, working with. So if you have two axes, right, and you're tracking, like, I don't know, how a ball balances and you're tracking motion, here would be the germinal influx between the axes of the aligned and affiliated. So then in the imperial, you have a displaced representative desire, which is incest. Um, if I remember correctly. So incest um, is still taking a pivotal role here, but uh, Oedipus is going to take on the repressing representation and start to develop in its capacities, right? Like Brooks was saying from Holland, uh, incest becomes possible in new ways, almost as though it's bordering on the symbolic, um, which I don't think is exactly the case, but it gives you an idea. Because like Brooks was saying, it's not the mother and affiliation. It, the stakes are a little bit higher now because the outsider, um, through the new alliance, right, through new connections, is able to do something to the sister and something to the, the great mother, the divine mother, however you like, that basically reconfigures the whole coordination system that bears upon the germinal influence. Yes. And I, and I and just to add all of this again to go back to JK's question about where Oedipus is in this, we're talking about essentially, as they even phrase it, I think, the long story of Oedipalization of a society. So if we think of society or the socius essentially as being not far off from our own uh, sort of uh, desiring machine body without organ collective that is our own subject, it operates much the same. And we're talking about the pieces over time that cause us to be Oedipalized. 
are not exactly drastically different than the pieces that cause society to become so as well. Um, in fact, they're deeply tied together. So we're again, we're talking about over time, the story towards Oedipalization that comes with uh, capital, ultimately. But lots of pieces before. It's like a jigsaw puzzle, but a Mobius strip, right? Man, there's so much there. There's so much there. Um, let's see where to move to next. Where to move to next? There's so much. Uh, I think we should move past the transfer. Oh, there we go, Boskert. Uh, so how do regimes change? What catalyzes the move from primitive to despotic? Does this have any relation with shifts further down the line? Um, so there's there's bits and pieces. I, I, I would be hesitant to say that they believe in any grand sea change, like here is where it happened or here's the moment. It's much more of pieces of despotism start showing up and uh, ultimately are always haunting capital as well as always haunting savage uh, uh, socius. It's always waiting because the the pieces ultimately just need to crystallize in just the right way and suddenly there you go, you got despotism and it's not a lot. It's not super difficult, but they give some examples in during the savage times, for example, as it shifts to the despotic um, of like the ways that they battle against it or the ways that it tries to protect itself ultimately in futility but very much it's kind of these this uh this thing is is on its way and it just needs these few contingent little bits uh uh does so despotism is kind of the catalyst boskard's asking so despotism is kind of the catalyst that precludes despotism in a way like it has a gravitational pull almost um I don't even know if I would say despotism. It's parts of it that make it up. And it's it's a lot of different ways that it sort of starts showing up. I was having this discussion with Goering um, because, you know, their Deleuze and Guattari's take on uh, 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 China is, is, we'll say, at least for the time, forward thinking, for now, hilariously backwards and super orientalist. Um, there's a lot of differences in terms of how you know, things literally play out or what the parts are as far as we see or the representations of them. But the functions and what they produce is nearly identical. And so it's not so much that despotism uh, precludes despotism or anything like that. These are representations we're using to describe it. It's parts of how despotism functions within the way it represses people that these parts just need to show up in a certain spot, certain order. There's a soft place where, you know, savagery is a little vulnerable. Uh, for example, the moment of uh, sort of having the way that uh, savagery is organized is very, very apt to be controlled from the outside. Uh, and it's very difficult to fight against. They talk about that very specifically. So the way repression functions over time and the things that do that, the little bits, uh, death by a thousand cuts thing, sort of shifts over time into being despotic. Just as when we get into this, and we will next week when we start reading about capital, 
there's not a sudden switch from despotic to capital. In fact, I think many could argue that we're in the transition still or the whatever it may be. It's it's a constant battle, but uh, that's always happening of these types of representations or this types of social oppression or these soci, because it's not one hard, fast thing. Um, uh, uh, Rimcast, what was the Death by a Thousand Cuts about? Um, the little bits, all of the little pieces that make up despotism, the machines that ultimately cause it to produce a very specific way, there's not one. It's not like despotism is a single machine and, oh, there it is, that's what despotism is, we can stop it or we can start it or whatever. It's all of these things and how they function come together to cause the despotic as we know it, and it's all of these little functions. And so we just need a little bit here. It's uh, the knowledge that a mom exists, for example, would be a piece. It's not all of it, but it's a piece. And the mom machine or the desiring mom machine and incest versus the being aware of uh, a monotheistic religion and having such a thing that, uh, hey, is the earth really what we owe everything to these little bits that produce their own forms of repression or their own forms of desire or their own everything. These are millions of little machines in the socius that also operate and change things. Those are the death by a thousand cuts I'm talking about. If that makes sense, Rumka. it's not, it's not one machine replacing another, I guess is I'm trying to really impress that as far as my understanding and all, all the stuff I've read, it's, Lots of little machines that sort of shift this over time, and it's not one giant, oh, cool, well, here's this other piece, now suddenly we've got a despotic machine. It's like, sort of, there's a lot of little machines inside of that. Um, the same way that I wouldn't say anyone is a despotic person or a full body, or that anyone has a despotic subjectivity or a paranoiac uh, mind, I can say such things, but... That's just one aspect of it, and it's a bunch of little machines that make that become the truth. It's the same setup. It's not literally said Neo. I'm, I'm kind of trying to make it a little bit simplistic and going a little off the reservation a little bit here, as it happens. Far off, actually. But hey, maybe I'm not terribly wrong. Well, it's so the reason I say death by a thousand cuts, the, the use of death and the way that it shifts also from the uh, primitive to the despotic is the way life and death is now controlled. Life and death in the uh, 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 savage times is, I don't want to say something that a person has themselves, but there is a more direct control of such a thing. With the despot, and they go deeply into this, it's not just that I owe him my land or my food or the things that I grow, but my very life itself, I literally, I owe everything to the despot. And the power of the despot includes the power of life and death over his people. Debt becomes, and this is the a debt of existence, the existence of the subjects themselves. So that's a direct line from AO. So it's over time, the debt shifts and my life, I give up and I now owe to others. I, to me, I, I, draw a line between that and death pretty closely um at least i do i've gone so far off of this now where are we <laughs> um yeah that was a lot am i making sense jack sorry i, I was i was talking over you sorry i was talking over you 
That's cool. And, and the end of this is always a lot, man. It, it's, and that's what makes it so interesting. You know, there's there's a lot to chew on in every sentence. Um, even the commas seem profound, uh, like a Lispector novel. But um, I guess to go back to how do you get the despotic, right? What what makes that possible and what um, puts it into motion so that you wake up one day in a despot's in town, as Blizzard said. So on one hand, it is that it's the establishment of a limit in the, in the uh, primitive socius, right? Because the decoded flows are repressed and a, repressed, uh, a representation and impression are constituted, right? The conditions for a limit are established and that limit, um, and this is really interesting how they develop this, that limit makes a lot possible in the same way that a horizon, right? It's not just the closing off of things, it also opens up a whole um, slew of potentialities as much as it can close them off. And so in this case, right, we're working with incest as that horizon. And the despotic, and I think this is why the outside is so important for them here, because the outside makes possible um, the introduction of a, something into the filiative and the alliant network of the earth that otherwise wouldn't be possible, right? It makes something new possible. Uh, and in this way, it makes transgressing the limit possible through the introduction of the, um, almost say, of the, the unadulterated, right? Um, uh, but resisting that temptation. Because the despotic then can displace the limit, and that's going to be important with capital, because this is, these two socii kind of um, will, will lead us into capital in this kind of, again, like classic on one hand, but on the other, um, dual perspective. Sort of mutually inclusive, interestingly enough. Um, but with that, right, to get the despotic, you have that displacement of the limit. And it's basically, in a sense, through a deterritorialization. What you get out of the paranoiac knowledge, the first principle, is a paranoiac investment. And that goes all the way back to 1.2, where the paranoiac functions. Um, I like the example of Judge Schreiber, right, where the BWO. Um, is on the one hand, as always, producing the schizophrenic uh, miraculation, and on the other hand, producing the paranoiac god that is trying to put a stop to it all, right? It's, uh, it's both producing production and producing um, a counter uh, position to that production, a counterproduction, if you like. And with, the first, with this kind of deterritorialization, with this first principle of paranoiac knowledge, with this desert, right, you have the earth being re-territorialized altogether in the same way that overcoding, right, it doesn't get rid of the, um, the codes, but it um, overlays them, kind of like a desert could overlay um, what has been there, right? So we're like, it's not just that the grass um, is gone, it's that the whole topography, the soil and things are changing altogether. Uh, so I think that kind of gives you the at least the starting point for where why where does despotism come from right when's despotism is through that displacement of the limit through uh, definitely like you're saying bro it's not one but a series of paranoiac investments that makes that displacement not only possible but will actually make it actualizable yeah i like i like all of that that's great that's that's really great
so the question of what's the what is driving the uh, you know what is the motivation behind the desperate uh, you know, these despotic flows uh, you, you so uh, it brings into question the um, you know the uh, uh, the Nietzschean you know uh, idea of will to power and also you know the uh, the pleasure principle right you know when you talk about Oedipus and so forth Oedipus complex so those are those those are probably uh, the driving forces and of course the the fear of um, the re reaction against the desperate those are you know counter right counterflows that are also emanating from uh, from uh, resentment and uh, and uh, you know revolutionary uh, you know reactions that create uh, paranoia, right? And so those kind of like reaction and counter reactions are also forces, right? Can I start that one, Brooks, and then I'll yeah, go for it. So, so one of the big moves that that's really interesting here. Uh, especially if you're like me and interested in finance or just economics, right? Is that we're going to move from the primitive socius in a system of debt relations to a, uh, a barbarian socius in a system of credit relationships where the, the, the credit is infinite, right? It's always, um, uh, it's, it, I mean, both in a sense are promulgating, but in this way, right? It's always, um, uh, in infinitesimal, right? The credit is always not just uh, simply extending, but expanding, right? And those conditions, um, that makes part, uh, that's important for the despotic because to have the despotic continue, right? To have that socius um, have longevity, the, the crediting system has to be expansive and, and constitutive. It's part of that. I, I think it's been critical for any principle of paranoid college that you're going to have this. Um, this crediting aspect to it. So with that, right, that's a big move from a debt relationship to a credit relationship. It seems almost conflative because they seem so close together, but it's a huge move. So to get at your um, your question then, because uh, you're bringing your Nietzsche on that, where they close 3.5 in their transition from the primitive to the despotic, um, I think is kind of insightful there because it's going to help us understand that one, uh, some things are changing because they're leaning on Nietzsche for a lot of the debt credit thing, right? That's not just, um, like they're not just like looking at Marx here or not uh, anymore. They're looking at Mouse, um, but they are going to provide an important criticism of Nietzsche that's going to play into the despotic. So this is uh, pages 191 to 192, and I, I won't read all of it. I'm just going to kind of jump around a little bit. Coding pain and death, it has foreseen everything, except for the way its own death would come to it from without. So right, we're talking about how um, the, the, the socius and this codification, right? There's like a kind of an epistemic thing here. It's foreseen all this stuff, except from the without which is what the despotic is able to, um, or rather, which makes the despotic possible, this um, sort of outsideness. They go on to write, uh, I think this is from Nietzsche, they come like fate without reason, consideration, or pretext. They appear as lightning appears, too terrible, 
too convincing, too sudden, too different even to be hated. Their work is an instinctive creation and imposition of forms. They are the most involuntary, unconscious artists there are. Wherever they appear, something new arises, a ruling structure that lives in which parts and functions are delimited and coordinated, in which nothing whatever finds a place that has not been assigned a so-called meaning in relation to the whole. Then he goes into a great deal about guilt. I'm going to try and jump past this crazy long inches bit. Um, they are the founders of the state. Nietzsche will come to establish the existence of other greats, those of the great city-state, Christianity, democratic and bourgeois humanism, industrial society, capitalism, and socialism. But it could be that all of these in various ways presuppose the first great hiatus, although they all claim to repel and to fill it. It could be that spiritual or temporal, tyrannical or democratic, capitalist or socialist, there has never been but a single state. The state is dog that speaks with flaming roars. And Nietzsche suggests how this new socius proceeds, a terror without precedent, in comparison with which the ancient system of cruelty, the forms of primitive regiment and punishment are nothing, a concerted destruction of all the primitive codings, or worse yet, their derisory preservation, their reduction to the condition of secondary parts of a new machine, and the new apparatus of repression. All that constituted the essential element of the primitive inscription, primitive inscription machine, and the blots of mobile, open, finite debts, so-called the parcels of destiny, finds itself taken into an immense machinery that renders the debt infinite and no longer forms anything but one and the same crushing fate. The aim now is to preclude, pessimistically, once and for all, the prospect of a final discharge. The aim now is to make the glance recoil, disconsolate from an iron impossibility. End quote, and I think that's Nietzsche. The earth becomes a madhouse. So it's not quite pleasure here, or, or at least I don't think it is, right, even though desire is at play. Um, it's going to be this move from cruelty into terror, and this move out of, um, and, and we can look at other passages to expand this, uh, this analysis, but this move from debt into credit. Um, that makes the despotic uh, not only possible, but that's going to be uh, part of this transition. I, I also want to just make sure, because we're talking specifically, just to go back to the question about uh, what the despot produces um, and the flows that come from the despot. Uh, my understanding is that there are none. Uh, so the despot works and is effectively, and I know JK, you're in our logic of sense reading as well. The, the despot's a quasi cause. It's not actual cause. The despot doesn't do shit, like doesn't actually do things. It uh, holds a place in the role of signification that makes it seem like it's doing shit. But it's like, it's like the earth in the primitive. The earth doesn't do anything. The earth is just kind of there. But the earth is what gives us our bounty and our good harvest. It's like oh, earth, didn't, earth, didn't, earth didn't give a shit. The despot doesn't give a shit. The despot doesn't do anything. But to it, all things are attributed. Ah, yes, because the despot, the despot looked down on us and, and gave us a bounty. Uh, we, as a people, will go to war. Uh, I mean, God, just how many countries that had a despotic ruler 
literally identify with the ruler as being the father of the land or the one who made it all possible. It's it's incredibly common in despotic or dictatorial countries for that to be the case. The leaders very rarely do anything in such an environment. Um, and so that, that quasi-cod becomes a bit like a monotheistic god of that sort, also does nothing but that we ascribe everything to. This is not so much that they're producing, but it's that they're overcoding the alliances and the flows that are already there that basically cause them to come back through themselves as the sole cause. Um, the everything is owed to me, surplus is mine, all production comes back on my full body as the sole cause of such production. production. Um, and it's that setup and that thing is the challenge for for despotism as a as a setup so it, it's just very much specifically on the what is a what are the flows coming from i would read as none i'm i'm open to critique on that but that's my understanding of of all the soci is that they don't do shit they don't okay so with they don't produce anything they don't produce anything they organize but they don't produce and if, if you're going to walk the quasi-cause bit in, we're not talking about the body there. We're talking about the effect, right? So we're not talking about the cause. We're talking about the effect. We're talking about, well, <sighs> yes, I think so. Yes. But it's difficult because they're still going to talk about the whole body, right? I, I struggle there, too. I've been trying to piece that together because the terminology if it's consistent, would suggest that quasi-cause we're talking about like a simulacra, right? But then we're going to see the full body of the despot. <laughs> I, I still think even with full body, it still works. The full body of the earth is still a quasi-cause. The full body of capital is still a quasi-cause. It doesn't, it doesn't produce anything. It organizes and takes on production as itself being a cause of, but that it actually is not. Uh, that's the sleight of hand it plays. Through organizing production, labor, all of these things, profit, capital makes us think that it has done a thing. It hasn't done shit. It doesn't produce anything. Money doesn't produce itself. The despot doesn't produce anything. The The people do. I do. I make stuff in the same way that, uh, and it operates. This is why, it, again, to go back to it being a larger version, when we talk about regimes of the molar and molecular, uh, Brooks doesn't produce anything. Brooks is the organizational method with which all of the desiring machines underneath what I call Brooks organize in order to produce further Brooksiness. But Brooksiness is not like a thing that produces stuff. It just organizes. And Brooks is the despot inside of my body. Like it is the fascist inside. And that setup is the same thing that a despot does. The despot all things track to them, all flows go to them, but they don't produce anything. They organize. And I think that's true even of the full body of the despot. They don't, they still don't produce, they organize. That's the nature of Soshai, is the organization of production, not the actual administration of it. I do think that's right where the, because that's the, that is that like Nietzschean, Levi-Straussian language, right? Where the, the plus minus, all the flows are moving in these ways, but they're also being blocked in other ways, right? That coordination is um, uh, actualizing.
Yeah, and it's it's the setup that goes with that. And one of the things that they talk about that really is preventing capital from kind of coming in early, just as the primitive had its own things of stopping uh, through their very deep sort of organization and the scarring of people in the writing on the bodies that prevented anyone from taking credit for all for what the earth was giving them. With capitalism coming in, capital wants surplus. Like that's really what makes capital like really get to be able to organize and be the fuel that drives it. But the the nature of the despotic is that it never allows more of a surplus than it needs. And it's, it's organizational methods keep that pretty, pretty standard and set up. Uh, the, the line that's from AO is um, when Bellas asks why capitalism wasn't born in China in the 13th century, when all the necessary scientific and technical conditions nevertheless seem to be present, the answer lies in the state, which closed the mines as soon as the reserves of metal were judged sufficient, which retained a monopoly or a narrow control over commerce. The, the despot, again, organizes, not produces, organizes, and keeps things within a very particular set of controls and, and prevents ridiculous surplus that would ultimately kind of allow the explosion of capital, just as uh, the surplus of, uh, you know, the primitive is ultimately kind of one of the things that gave way to the the despotic. So it's a really interesting sort of setup when we talk about it being purely organizational. It's determinant of what is going to happen, but it is not a priori. It is not a cause. It is a quasi-cause. And that's one of the interesting things about, the, about this at the level of the unconscious, right? There's a surplus value in all three sociates, right? That's um, definitely a given. But the way it's produced and what's going on with the socius is different in all three, like you're saying. Uh, I, I like your example because with the mines, um, there's a closing of a flow, right? We've got that language again of um, the, the plus and the negative of the coordination, closing off a flow and then redirecting. And with that too, I think you you start to become more aware of these kind of limits that they're talking about where um, production can be shifted, right? So now the new alliance with that, the connective synthesis, possible in the, uh, in the keep on the same imperative, in the imperial um, socius, right, is able to shift those connections. Um, and interestingly enough, will shift the, uh, the inscriptive as well. Yeah. Yeah, and the the repression of desire through this form of inscription, through this organization of production, because again, we're talking about there's two orders of regime. There is the molecular, uh, which is the desiring machines, and the uh, uh, molar social machines, subjects playing around with each other and doing shit. Um, the the nature of these things also is to basically create and institute versions of consumption and debt and how they play. Again, the organization of productive forces goes both ways. And with D&G, as we move into the despotic, the organization of debt basically makes it infinite 
towards the despot. Again, you owe everything, including your very life. Uh, and consumption is very much also ruled. What are you allowed to have? What is your part? What is your setup is deigned by the king or the godhead, whatever, whatever sort you have. Uh, that shift of how things flow being controlled through the full body of the despot, the one quasi cause of it all that ultimately organizes such a thing is the underlying sort of critique they have versus, you know, this idea of, you know, a history that is, you know, contingent on this or, you know, grew over time or whatever. They're like, no, it's, it's about how repression plays and organization is done through these various bits. And we need to be looking again at those, those base layers of how things produce and what, what, what is produced as we go. It's such a complicated fucking chapter. It is. It is incredibly complex. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to challenge one of our baseline assumptions um, today, which is that, that of intentionality, right? Because um, when you start getting into the despotic in that, you, you're right. The apparatus is, um, is acting, right? The, the flows are being coordinated in that. But at this unconscious level, it's fascinating to, to consider that with the socius and that, um, the minds aren't closing because of, uh, by like a, a rational calculation on that, although we will see some calculations, um, although there are going to be calculations of flux, <laughs> because of course they're, it's Duluth. Um, but with that, you know, it's, it's fascinating that they're going to point to, uh, just in terms of emperors, right, Caligula and Julio Gabalas. Right, the, the emperor, well, on one hand, certainly the emperor of terror, and then Ilio Gabalus being like in this other paradigm, right, almost, where uh, if you follow Artaud's creative biography, right, he's, he's the crowned anarchist. Um, fascinating to consider that in light of the imperial, that there would be a crowned art, uh, anarchist in the imperial formation. Um, but why not? But with that, I guess, um, and I'm sort of keeping my point, um, it, it's worth keeping in mind there, too, that with these paranoid investments and with, with how the coordination is happening, right, one of the ways, so we're not just talking about the crediting relationships and their place in conditioning um, not only the production of subjectivity and the production of production, um, but also... Uh, I think what's uh, going to be an, impo an important component of how they work, which we started getting at uh, earlier, and it's going to be, uh, in a sense, language, right? But it, it's more than that. It's going to be the way that the grapheme and the phoneme go from the gap that the eye reconciles, right? Their use of the uh, tar, I think is how you say his name. Le there you go, there's an attempt at French. Um, and the way that that's going to shift to, I would almost call it a conflation, but they're, they're conjoining, right? It's no longer when you have that separation all of a sudden. Um, and this is important because it's not, especially in terms of overcoding, it's not a conflation, it's a kind of subordination, right? Which goes back to JK's question of how this is, how this functions, right? How do we get to this transition? In part, it's going to be a subordination. Uh, and particularly, one of the ones they're going to focus on is going to be uh, the sort subordination um, 
of I think it's the, the basically graphene to the phoneme, but the way that that also allows the graphene on the other hand uh, to have a certain um, I don't want to say preponderance, but um, certainly a different um, reciprocative uh, capacities in that relationship that don't render it flat, but actually make it capable of its own um, uh, its own devices. Well, it enables the disembodiment of the despot, which is a, you know, it's, it's the kind of thing where you go to the primitive and you say, someone walks into a town and goes, uh, hey, uh, how you doing? I'm, uh, I'm God. Uh, You've got to do stuff I'm doing. And uh, they'll probably say no, or they'll kill you, maybe. Like, you can't control people that way. Uh, but the, with the despotic, thanks to this new form of inscription that shows up, the the minions of the despot can walk around and go, see here are the edicts. They can, they can have this sort of setup where they lay it down and they go, what do you think of this? And it's written. One of the interesting things about any sentence, again, to go back to logic of sense, it's Deleuze's thing. Uh, any sort of uh, proposition has three parts, uh, signification, uh, denotation, and manifestation. That third one is the who is saying it. And if there is no literal who, like Brooks is talking right now, or Jack was just talking, or what you're reading Deleuze and Guattari's book, but instead, if it's the despot, suddenly it has this on high power, this, this infinite control and power that, that is able to control and is able to do things just through the nature of inscription itself, which is incredibly powerful. Um, and they go a lot into not just Derrida's uh, sort of, you know, take on overall because uh, I don't want to, I really don't want to get into overall like semiotics or linguistics here, but uh, the way that graph and voice disappear into each other, um, writing aligns itself now on the voice is the phrase they keep saying. Suddenly the voice then becomes subordinate to the writing. And when it's written, you hear the voice in your head. It is said. Uh, you see the edicts or the proclamations. It's a completely different mentality in every single way. And as you know, you're saying in the chat, it's spot on. This is how we start preparing and having those pieces for what will ultimately become capital. Uh, and the next step. Rumcast, is there theor theoretically an escape from a despotic machine? I mean, there is. We, we escape from it through capital. So there you go. Uh, is it re-territorialization through another despotic machine possible? Um, the, the despotic machine as a thing may have a person. They can be killed. They'll be replaced. It's one of the reasons, and they talk about this, that through many, many, many countries and places and cultures and times, that when you would get to the point where you would kill the king, another one pops in. And it's not that, oh, that king was part of it or it's multiple despots battling. It's this is the machine. This is how production's organized. Production's organized like this. What the fuck are you going to do? Like explode the entire system? Like that's not how anything works. People are already organized and aiming in this. This is how things go about their day. Uh, to go back to the Brooksiness thing, uh, I'm going to generally generally do stuff that Brooks is going to do every day. That's just the way it works. To ask me to do stuff that is not directly already in what I would expect to be Brooks is difficult, but to assume that I'm going to be comfortable doing it without any help is absurd. And the same is true of anything in a societal level. People who live under despotism, that's the world they know. That's how things are organized. Uh, 
it's a it's a challenge. It's a big challenge. Um, and then to your final question, will traces of displaced represent representation stay forever among people? Well, I mean, that's part of what we'll discuss, I think, in the fourth chapter of how to sort of get beyond representation and or get beneath it or figure out what's trapping it, which I think is a significant thrust of the end of this book, to say the least. Um, that's a lot of questions. That's a lot of answers. Uh, Boskert asks, uh, could we talk about how it is, isn't an escape, like when one regime rises, it's the full mutual exclusion of other regimes? Um, you may have to expand on that, Boskert. I don't know if I'm fully understanding the question. I suppose we can give another answer you don't want, but in a way, the despotic is, does come with lines of escape from the primitive, right? <laughs> not the ones you're necessarily hoping for any more than the ones that um capital will that will open up capital from the despotic are necessarily the ones you're looking for uh, but those are there, there are lines of escape there and it's there's a lot of different ways to think through this uh, they're very clear specifically in the book and i do like holland's interpretation of ao uh this brings more true to me than a lot uh, which is this idea that there are, we've had three socii and the question is what is the fourth? So we have the first, which is a primitive socius uh, that has no economy whatsoever to speak of and also no power structures. It's a very imminent, deeply repressive, fairly brutal uh, life. Uh, the dictatorial despotic uh, is without economy. The dictator controls everything, the despot controls everything and total power. It's a, it's a power society, very much a power society. And as we move into capital, we're going to be talking about how capital brings economy to power. And that puts us in an interesting place to figure what else may come after this. And again, if we're looking at through their eyes, one of their big things, let's talk about what life produces in the process and then see what might come next. Um, and you ask, uh, once we have a despot, does that mean there are no more instances within society of primitive regimes? Similarly, once the rise of capital comes around, there are no more despots. Uh, it's not clear cut like that. Um, it's it's about, again, how production is organized amongst them. And very often what you find even in history books or today is there will be pockets. I mean, this is true in China. This is true in Mongolia. Uh, this is true in parts of Africa and South America. Uh, any tribe that is still in what we might call primitive or you know hasn't been brought into society or completely uh, taken over through you know some awful shit um, but they are connected. They are still controlled. The way they go about their day, what they produce is dependent on that connection. So very often despotic societies will absolutely allow local tribes to continue doing what they do. They don't, it's not like they come in and go, excellent. You are now a train factory town. Like that's not how it starts. They come in and they go, Hey, this is great. We love all your stuff. Oh, you make, you, you produce corn. That's great. 20% uh, of it, uh, we're going to take. Now 30, now 40. Over time, that starts shifting because, again, their job is not to produce things in here or to change the society. Their job is to simply organize it. And that's the shift. As soon as you have this new power structure and this new type of representation, you're kind of doomed in that direction regardless. If that makes sense. Um, it's why they talk at length about Oedipus showing up in other uh, earlier uh, 
in primitive societies, it's it's not necessarily that like Oedipus is like some determinant thing. It just so happens to pop up after we teach people about what a mother is and what a sister is. And then they're like, oh, oh, so these people are special. Yes, but you can't fuck them. Oh, I didn't, I, I want that. And then suddenly they have the displaced representative and the repressing representation like that. That's all it takes. Because before that, they didn't have a mom to want to fuck. They'd, they kind of just wanted to fuck in general, but they didn't fuck their mom because, you know, that's their affiliative line. Then at the same time, they didn't fuck their sister because their sister was like basically livestock for better or worse uh, that they were selling out. So this, they didn't think about things in this, these terms, but now they do. We gotcha. Representation. Gotcha. It's kind of the idea. Uh, please, anyone. Uh, I'm kind of just rambling now. Hey, Ben, it's good to see you. Uh, shish kebabs sound amazing. I'm doing a brisket later today. It's been cooking, well, pre prepping for six days. I'm taking a while. Um, Bosker asks, once the rise of capital comes around, are there now no more despots? Uh, this works the same. Again, um, they're very big into this idea of sort of throwing out, this is the era, nothing more, everything changes on this day. But instead, that these things are gradual and shifting, and all of these pieces are in different places that we're able to work with or not work with. So over time, uh, in theory, when we have like the next socius, whatever it comes, uh, the socius of Steve, we'll say. So Steve comes along and everything's great. He figures out whatever's coming along. There still be pockets of capital because capital organizes in a very specific way. There will still be despotic pockets in places because it works in some way. And the same will be true of the primitive. Now, there'll be modified, mutated versions of such things. And their problems for it, uh, Ben nails the wording. The despot is the ground, this undetermination, the nightmare that hides under capital. Um, America, actually. Maybe a good example of such thing. And the primitive is the nightmare for the despot. Uh, these things don't like disappear and it's not like we're safe from it. Oh, phew, we've passed the despotic. God, that's nice. It's instead the setup of like, we're moving, we're moving, we're moving. Here are these pieces we're collecting. I still have this piece over here. Shh, don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone it's there. Like kind of hiding as we go. Uh, and it's a lot of it's terrifying to capital. Uh, a lot of it's terrifying to the primitive. And uh, the despotic is kind of waiting. So is capital around every corner. Yeah, the socius is built on the wreckage of the previous socius with the pieces sort of being recycled inside of it, for sure. It's spooky to everyone. It's, it does away with this notion that we live in like a very specific time with a specific way, this idea of like a liberal democracy end of history kind of bullshit where, oh, this is the way things are. Good, we've passed it. And then uh, maybe we learn very, very quickly that's not the fucking case. Um, instead, that we have all of this. Now, what, how do we make sense of that? And for DNG, it's simple. Just, just go to the basics. Go to the desiring machine. See what's happening. See how shit's being organized. See where they have these, so these paralogisms taking place and, and how they're working. Because if it works at the personal level, but it can also work at the societal. And it does, actually, in a pretty significant way. The way that they're talking about all of this and how the socius affects, 
It's the same shit from chapter two. Like, it's just brought to a different regime. What might be help, uh, helpful here, and this is always where I go, <laughs> a lot of my references, to trying to work out um, the relationship of the soci with each other, and eventually the BWL. Because it sounds like what you guys are kind of getting at is like, basically what chapter four is going to do is, um, right, so and it's going to be the BWL, what do you do, what do we do with these three soci, and, you know, especially with the BWO? what's possible now um and, and i think in a sense that's kind of how they leave it in that open way what's possible now but if you go to page 282 the two famous diagrams i think this is really helpful because um you know this pendulum at the top on one hand is quite tempting to understand um and they don't necessarily necessarily say this is wrong either to understand how production is occurring um, between the soci and eventually the BWO and the breakthrough and the breakdown, right? Whereas on the bottom, they've got it organized a different way, which I've always liked. Um, and I think this is the one they kind of go to, but if you look there, what's important to understand is that, um, and I think this was the point Brooks was ending on, uh, See, I'm not sure about the terror there because I think the terror, at least for the first two, is the decoded, is the non-coded flows. I can't exactly remember. I think the terror for capital is going to be the BWL, but I can't quite recall right now. Um, but more specifically, the way that these, the way that the process of production will actually still work with the three soci, and in this case, that right there, again with the body is the body of capital money the despotic body, and the body of the earth, it gives you a nice way of not only visualizing it, but seeing how the process itself will lead into the BWO and um, the potentiality of deterritorialization, which will give you like that um, the breakthrough part, right, where the, the potential is um, potential for the possible is actually kind of opened up. But also the... Um, the alternative with schizophrenia is a clinical entity, which we'll talk about in chapter four, and the, the balance back or the breakdown, right? Well, I guess this would be more of the balance back, where the paranoiac investment was kind of, um, uh, re, I don't want to say reinstantiated, but maybe amplified a bit, right? Where the Oedipal neuroses uh, falls back on the body of capital, paranoia psychoses as despotic entities, and perversions as to ter territorial entities will fall back on the body of the earth. That those three soci still form this, uh, or still are components of the the overall machine, I think is critical. And it's almost, it's a little Kierkegaardian, if you like, in the sense that it's not, a, like you're saying, it's not a clean cut um, progression like you would get in, I think it's Colbert's uh, moral development stages. It's more like Kierkegaard's kind of zones where you're kind of moving from the aesthetic to the ethical and they're like their their relationships are, are super critical for that because they're not um you know they're not really I don't want to say progressive, but they're 
it's not like you're moving from stage one to stage two. It's that you're you're uh, moving through these zones, and that'll actually be kind of language for the DWO as much as the soci, right? That's huge for the uh, the second synthesis, and it's helpful too because with with this understanding, you know, like I said earlier, it's tempting, especially in our day and age, to look at the despotic like um, as Iliogabalus or as the strong man or as this person. I really do think it's critical to understand the socius, especially um, insofar as it's quasi-causal, uh, not only for the body of the person, uh, but also in this kind of, um, you know, they'll, they'll say it's like a veritable BWO, but in this sense of, in the, in the same way that writing, there's a, like they will say in the despotic, there's an ambiguous voice speaking, the voice of God in some cases, right, that's able to speak. Um, through writing, through basically through writing, and I've got to take that. We'll let you take that. Uh, well, Jack's uh, taking his call. Anyone have any other comments, questions, thoughts? Because I th we've kind of gone over a lot of the different ideas, and I want to make sure I get through uh, any other things people are wondering or curious about with three point seven or any of the socii up to capital. We're not going to get into capital yet. We ain't read it. So don't. I'm not a bunny, you're not a frog. Let's not leap ahead. We're going to be okay here. We'll just stick with this one. Fully open. Come on. Do you have anything, JK? Any comments, thoughts? Maybe not right now, maybe a little bit later. Thanks. Figured I'd just start calling on people. <laughs> Sorry. You got to go first. Ben, uh, any comments on this before I move on to Bosker's um, next question? Are we on 2.9, 3.9? Uh, we, are, we are discussing 3.7. We aren't, we did the last, the last three weeks, we did the readings of the chapter and uh, oh, we right, just right, ended right, spot right, on. Sorry. Yeah, we ended spot on last week and it was like, ah, eh, we're not going to do 20 minutes of reviewing this. So we're, we're doing like a whole big giant review of the concepts inside of 3.7. No, I mean, I just missed like most of this week. So uh, I don't even know what y'all were talking about most of the today. It's all it's all sociuses all the time, my friend. Um, Bostgard, I think uh, go for it. Go there's for it, an interesting. There's like an interesting overlap between uh, Bergson's creative evolution and sort of like uh, I was reading this paper about how Bergson sort of like uh, revolutionized uh, this idea of canalization in uh, the evolution of things and like how the socius sort of serves as kind of like uh, the absolute limit of what's even possible, right? So like certain certain like things are only possible within the socius that they arise in or whatever, I think is a really interesting idea that's going to kind of come up even more in this book. Like we see uh, 
in this whole section, Deleuze was talking about how uh, in both the primitive and the despotic socius, the idea of incest as we uh, conceptualize it currently is not possible because of like the different sort of uh, social roles people take on where like, uh, like, yeah, it's just like that. Uh, the, the sociuses are going to be very important in grounding what's even possible uh, thought-wise or action-wise or productive-wise within them. Well, I think that, I mean, that's spot on. And that goes right to Bostgird's question, which is, is there like a regime backstop? What is stopping, what is the thing or the process that's keeping a despot, uh, despotic socialist from flowing back towards being that? And it's, it's literally the things you're talking about. The, the nature of how representation changes stops people from being able to have an imminent connection of their desires with the acts that they do. Um, the Again, well, the primitive is brutal and uh, the repression is extreme. This is not a place of freedom. I'm not saying that. Um, and definitely don't let anyone else convince you of such a thing. Um, but... It is a different place in terms of how things are organized and how things are set up and how production is organized. The, the primitive relies on me knowing my place and knowing what is expected of me, where my debts are at any given point. It's complex, it's reactive, but debts are, debts are emergent and constantly shifting. The despotic, one, changes my debts to be infinite to the despot, which means I'm always doing everything for him. But also because representation now shifts from being just purely graph, graph or a phoneme uh, to being the written word that is connected to the vocalized, I can't step back into a place. It's, you can't go back to a place for that. You'd have to raise an entire generation of children without teaching them language as we know it in order to even have that be a possibility. It's a, again, these things come hand in hand to, to D&G. These are not disconnected elements oh we also have this it's like no there's this giant ecosystem effectively of repression and they all these pieces work together and here's kind of where they come from here's where this machine gets created here's where this gets boom and it's, as these things form we get what we know as despotic you can have despotic without representation there are dickheads who've taken over places you no know, inside of you know primitive societies they don't last it's a different setup they talk a little bit about that and a few others uh, since have done books on such things. But when you have the two married, you can't shift back. There's no going back. Just like uh, it may be very difficult under capital for people to organize properly underneath a tyrant because, as you'll come to learn, the way that inscription again shifts or power structure shift, my dedication then becomes to capital, not to a person. And while we have some level of strongman fascist thing that's happening the organization of desires don't happen in the same way. People are still very much individualized, atomized. It's not uh, the same as a despotic where really we are all subservient parts and subject subjects of the king, even under, you know, Hitler and the Nazis, uh, the most extreme fascist, hardcore dictator dickheads. It's not the same setup, it's not the same organization. It's not the same thing. Capital's kind of one. Uh, it doesn't mean capital doesn't get despotic as shit, uh, but it just means we can't now kind of move back because we'd have to, like you say, wake up with collective amnesia of how all of these things work in every single way, like total amnesia. Representation's a bitch.
that's why uh, I really do think the logic of sense reading has helped me sort of flesh out at least my understanding or maybe even just my critique of representation as he's breaking it out and making it so deeply clear in that book. Um, it's been very useful because a lot of these ideas really spring to form there very nicely. I leave it awkwardly open for a few more moments. Someday we'll get you a mic boast, but for now I don't mind reading your questions. Uh, well, yeah, you're going to be asking the question again once we get through Capital, and we're going to have to do another review of Capital because, uh, I mean, Capital is effectively once we get through the next section, which is the Urstadt and the idea of the permanent state, the rest of the thing is about capitalist production and organization and capital is the socius and it's it, this part is complex and a lot how capital finally gets that sort of final layer into us of the entire thing um when it comes to like how oedipus works with the uh, paralogisms that last little bit is kind of it's a lot to take in i mean it just is it's just a lot to take in um we're gonna have to get through all of that so Woohoo! It's going to be a lot. But uh, more questions on this or things that uh, you've thought or your takeaways. I'd love anyone's thoughts on this. I know I'm rambling at length, mostly just to keep from having dead air, but uh, we can discuss anything you might need. Yeah, I have a question. But, um, do you think that uh, you're saying, losing part, uh, what are you saying that the um, that despotic uh, and possibly capitalism? could have uh, come about without uh, without Oedipus, without the Oedipus complex? That's a fucking good question. I like that. I don't know if I would say they're saying, I, I mean, I, I don't think they necessarily believe anything's wholly determinate and that we have to have the Oedipus complex for capital, but that there is a almost symbiotic relationship between how capital functions that necessitates the type of representation that Oedipus also needs to survive. So the, the coefficient between the, the thing that makes them both, that thing that makes them both function as representation and how it works through the paralogisms is necessary for capital to exist. It's also necessary for the Oedipus complex to exist as we know it. And as such, it's not so much, I think, that Oedipus is required to exist, but that it is another factor in it. A lot of, a lot of what Deleuze and Guattari do, and we saw this, like Logic of Sense is written like this as well, where it's not really, the book's not about uh, a paradox. Like Logic of Sense is not about paradoxes or about Alice in Wonderland. Uh, just as AO really isn't about Oedipus, Oedipus is just used as the critique and lens through with which to look back through time. Um, and Deleuze uses them as, 
Hey, do you see how this is working? Isn't that weird how it works like this? Do you see this other stuff work like that too? And that's kind of the lens that, you know, D&G are taking with Oedipus. I'm hesitant to say that they believe Oedipus is wholly determinant, like that it, it's inevitable inside of humanity. But the form it takes in the Oedipus complex and how representation works is necessary. Like rep the representation as it works is necessary for capitalism and vice versa. Uh, so there's a bit of a chicken and an egg thing happening there, like which maybe came first. But that would be my answer. My my that would that would be how I'm looking at it. Ben, Jack, anyone? That's a really good question. Uh, I think a really interesting parallel look at the development of this kind of representation that can provide an answer to that question is Robert Graves' The White Goddess. But it's like a insane book. The book is insane. It's It's absolutely fucking absurd. Like, if you thought ATP was constructed in a strange manner for a book it ain't got shit on the white goddess uh and it's got a really controversial conclusion that is drawn from uh a lot of his research but what's interesting is his research right so regardless of whether or not you agree with some of his conclusions it's a really interesting discussion on the development of representation in the Mediterranean, uh, the Middle East, and Europe. Uh, and I'd like to do a reading of it at some point because it's way too complicated to talk about in like a brief period without just sounding like a completely insane person. I 100% I, I back that. Uh, redoing a reading of that, I have no idea how we would because, uh, to your point, uh, I don't even know how to talk about the book. I, I mean, that's the end of my sentence. Um, yeah, no, it's it, it's an insane book. Like it's it's insane. It it, it, it makes when the it publisher makes sense sent it, it back though. to him for like editing and stuff. It like the publisher was like, "You have too much shit in here. You need to edit it." Uh, he just like sent it back full of like taped on pieces of paper and like glued in like bindings of more content to add. So it's just like insane. It's an insane thing to try to read. And I don't know how you could even begin to talk about maybe just like pick out certain chapters that are, but then you miss a lot of it too. I think I don't know. That's a really interesting anyone who's interested on like representation and like how deterministic uh is our society based on the way we even speak about things and like why do we speak about things the way we do and how did words change from being representations of a specific real thing to instead being like a grammatical unit that possesses a space within like a grammatical syntax and derives all of its meaning from its location in reference to other grammatical units. Like it's a really interesting book. But I think, and I would advocate just... for it heavily. Sorry. To just add to that, I think 
I think Ben and that's your way also of agreeing with me that this is more about representation moving through things than literally Oedipus and just to not to put a fine pin on it, but I think kind of. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's a fun, it's, I mean, it's a, it's an important distinction too, because as we move into the capitalist, I, it's one, and, and maybe this is a hot take, I don't know. Uh, the more and more I've read this and the more I've gone over it, when I first started reading AO uh, long ago, and when I read it the first time through with this book, I assumed it was a criticism of like the overall system of capitalism and the overall systems of things, uh, the same way that you know, Marx comes decidedly at uh, capital for how it, you know, utilizes labor as a thing. I'm a, I've moved a little bit beyond that, that we're not really talking about being angry at capitalism. It's incredibly pointed at representation as a thing. And I think, you know, Deleuze's writings prior to this, uh, difference in repetition and logic of sense point at this. But I would also add, since he paired up with Guattari, and Guattari's readings very much push in the same direction about how representation effectively fucks with the human mind. He comes at it less from the philosophical, economic side, but much more the psychoanalytic side. And where they meet is playing with how repression operates inside of us. And Oedipus is a fascinating one because it seems that we've kind of accepted. I mean, even now, where in a time when people laugh at psychoanalysis as being completely debunked, we absolutely are still Oedipalized as a society. Uh, like as a thing, the idea of the nuclear family and family being torn apart and how you need to have respect for your father and the law. And like, it's, it's incredible how we just, uh, the old comment, I think it was Zizek's, uh, if you don't see any ideology, that means it's yours. Like we live inside of that space. And so, how do we talk about what actually allows a person to be repressed at that point? Because Oedipus is such an absurdly assumed, you know, base thing and determinate thing of being human, but it doesn't have to be. And as they've explained through the last few sections, look, it's not. They, these things don't exist. The idea of mom and sister aren't really even in primitive cultures. So how can you have an Oedipus complex when like father and sister and mother are fairly meaningless? They don't even exist as terms in a, primitive semiotics, not even a thing. It's the introduction of representation that allows desire to be trapped inside of these different paralogisms and fucked with in these ways and having it be organized in these ways. And representation is kind of the enemy in a lot of ways through a lot of this. And it's a, I don't know, it's a, it's a fascinating, fascinating thing to me.
All right. Uh, any other last comments or anything before I sort of start winding us down and close this out? Uh, I'm glad that helps, Rimka. That's, that's my take. Now, everyone has a different take on AO, and I'm trying to avoid my best from keeping this place being like the despotic, this is Brooks's view, given that I'm entirely fucking uneducated in a lot of this. Um, and I'm mostly piecing together what I've heard from other people who we've been fortunate to have on the server and also the text that I've read that um, it's one of those things that I think you start to see amongst a lot of people who come from a lot of different directions and read Deleuze and become, you know, enamored by it, that it's a take on representation. And, you know, there's an amazing books on the production of subjectivity and how these things function that have been written because of it. And it's to me the most interesting because uh, I don't know if we can take on a system of capital, but I think we can learn how representation works and how these things uh, sort of interplay to create little machines that can start affecting things differently. I don't know. Just my thoughts. Uh, any other last thoughts before we move on? Because we are going to be closing out and then moving on to Urstat 3.8 uh, next week, which is a short one, luckily. Uh, so we'll be able to do that one quick and then also get through a big old discussion. If anyone has a last note, now would be the time where forever hold your peace. Mm -hmm. I'm happy to wait for a moment. I'll read the last uh, little bit from this section just to close us out. Um, the apparatus of social repression, psychic repression, will have to undergo a complete reorganization. Hence desire, having completed its migration, will have to experience this extreme affliction of being turned against itself. The turning back against itself, bad conscience, the guilt that attaches it to the most decoded of social fields, as well as to the sickest interiority, the trap for desire, its ugly growth. So long as the history of desire does not experience this outcome, Oedipus haunts all societies, but as the nightmare of something that has still not happened to them, its hour has not come. Love those. Love that phrasing as we move into the Erstat. Thank all of you for joining us today. I hope we answered some questions. I know we rambled at length. Um, uh, don't hesitate to ask any more stuff in the text chat. Uh, we will be here all week. We're here all week, folks. I'll talk to you later. We'll see you next week. Um, thank all of you so much for joining us. We'll see you then. Thank you.